As the video alluded to, we are in a series right now called The Reclamation Project. We are attempting to reclaim the love of Christ in the land of counterfeits. Who is Jesus? Who was Jesus? And what do those questions and those answers mean for who we are to be today? And so, in this series, we've looked at different pieces, different questions that came Jesus' way, issues of fear. And who bears the image of God? And um, issues of power, issues of control. Tonight we're going to talk about Caesar, because that text at the end there, Acts 17, that's what it's about. The first movement of people who claimed the ways of Christ were defied and denounced by the ways of Caesar. They were not two peas in a pod. And so on this Valentine, happy Valentine's Day, by the way, as in the same way that many of you started out the weekend by defining your relationship with another, we're going to do that tonight, not just with a person, though, but with a particular person in power. We're talking about who is the church today and how are we to be in relationship with the Caesars outside? Because there are a lot of them. The text that we're going to be looking at, that we're going to be basing this off of, is in Mark 12. Mark 11, the moment before the moment we're going to go into, is a different moment, if you know your scripture. Mark 11 is when Jesus has just stepped into Jerusalem, into the center of power, and he goes to the temple, and he shuts it down. He drives out the crooked with a homemade whip, and he curses out a fig tree for failing to bear fruit, like you do. This is not a moment in Jesus' story where he is giving lectures on how to win friends and influence people. And so it should be to nobody's surprise that by the time we get to Mark 12, there are enemies that have emerged. Jesus has failed to coddle those who are the keepers of the status quo, and in response, they've come out to confront him. They want to shut him down. And so in Mark 12, you have a text that starts out like this. Later they sent, and they sent to him some of his Pharisees, they as in the teachers and the elders and the priests of the law, those who were running the show at the temple, they sent to him some of his Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They're trying to catch him in his words. They can't do it in his works. They're trying to catch him in his words. And you know things are desperate because these two are linking arms to go about this work. The Pharisees and the Herodians were not buds. They didn't do stuff together. In fact, they were political adversaries. At a time like this, in an occupied land like that, there were different factions in the Jewish society that rose up to try to define and answer the question, what are we supposed to do about liberation? What are we supposed to do about our lives as a people? How are we supposed to build the future that is ahead of us? And there was about four specific groups that came up with an answer. Two of those groups were the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, you need to know this, the Herodians were, um, they were in support of Herod. Another group that merged with them, that more or less was them, was the Sadducees. Now, the understanding of the Herodians and the Sadducees was that, listen, maybe it's not ideal. Maybe the lay of the land, politically, socially, economically, maybe like Caesar shouldn't have his hands in all of our pockets and he shouldn't be dictating the way that we go about our business, but let's make the most of it. And instead of putting space between us and the throne, Let's actually start to participate in it. What could we do together? What could we do if we get a little bit of Caesar's power sent our way? He's not that bad after all. He might not be perfect, but we could work with him. This was the position of the Sadducees. This is why 
They are sad, you see. Okay, sorry about that. The other group that was their political adversaries were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees get a bad rap. Uh, in much of sermonic content and elsewhere, the Pharisees just get bad raps. They're kind of painted in the scripture, and it's not necessarily fairly done, but they're painted as the villains of the text. Now, understand that in the political heat of that time, then the Pharisees rose up with just a different answer, a different diagnosis, and a different kind of prescription to build the future that they thought everyone was in pursuit of. Theirs was not to get buddy-buddy and warm and cozy with power. They wanted space. The Pharisees were a separatist movement. Now, they built that on very binary black and white thinking, saying that those people over there, he slept with her, and so that's why we have the sin in this land. They cussed out them. That's why our taxes are the way they are. It's the sinners that are the problem for society's ills today. We want space. We don't need to share the sheets with Caesar. We want space. We want to do our own things. We want the high priests of our sect to be leading this society. And so you have these two groups who are not, uh, they're not aligned at all. Neither of them would look at the other one of them and say, like, I get what you're doing and I want in on that. They don't share any kind of commonalities. That is until Christ came along and gave them a problem. As we've talked about time and time again, Jesus did not die of old age. Jesus did not die um, from car accidents. Jesus was killed as an enemy of the state. Jesus was viewed as a viable political, economic, and social threat to the order of the day. And so there were people that had a problem with the picture of the future that Jesus was posing. And so after everything that went down in Mark 11, where Jesus has this temple moment and overturns tables and drives the crooked out and says, this is not how we do business in the church. People in the church, the ones who are doing the business in the church, they rise up against him. They may not have a lot that brings them together, but they do have this problem here, and they're going to do something about it now. And so the teachers and the elders of the law, they send the Pharisees Jesus' way, and they bring to him a question, which is an interesting thing to note, because that's different than somebody being sent to just take him out. The problem, the challenge that they have is that Jesus all of a sudden is popular. And so in like the fickle political masses of the day where the popularity would ebb and flow with different people, Jesus currently is on the uptick. The poor, the marginalized, the ones whom he was defending in the temple the day before, they suddenly are like, this guy is in our corner, let's go and be in his. And so they're advocating for him, which means that if you are trying to take him out, you can't just do that with a bullet. You can't just take him out. You have to try to destroy his credibility. And if you destroy his credibility, you'll dismiss the crowd that follows him. This is the same thing you see in our own history. You look at Dr. King's life. FBI, the powers that be, may have had a lot of problems with King, but they couldn't just take him out. They first had to build up some uh, disinformation. Take a couple shots at his credibility. Maybe that will thin out the crowd along the way. And so they're coming to Jesus with a question. Now, to understand the question that they're coming at him with, you kind of have to understand questions in general, especially in this context. In the first century of Israel, there were two different ways you could ask a question. The first was a respectful and pure way. You would call up a person, not by phone, maybe by pigeon. I don't know how they actually did communication from any kind of distance, but 
You would do it in private. If you had a problem that you were carrying and you had a question that you needed to pose, you would find the person who may have the answer and you would sit them down one-to-one, face-to-face and say, here's what I'm struggling with trying to understand. Can you lay it out for me the best way forward? That was how you actually express uh, um, honor, reverence, respect, dignity. You meet with the person in private. That is one way to go about asking a question. Another way is less private and less pure, and that's in public. In public settings, if you knew, if somebody was asking a question in front of a crowd and had a crowd that was willing to wait and listen for an answer, it was a sign of of dishonor and disrespect. They weren't actually trying to find an answer, they were just trying to do the work of exposing the one that they asked. They're going after Jesus' credibility. The best parallel that you could actually find to something like this in modern times today is if you went to a comedy club and you heard a heckler inside of there. Now, I recently did a comedy stand-up bit, and about three minutes into it, I had hecklers saying, you're boring, uh, this isn't good, and can't we just eat our dinner in peace, Dad? And I said, you guys need to sit through. I'm not done with my material, and I'll let you know when I am. But should I ever move from the kitchen to the club, I will be ready for the hecklers present in that situation. In fact, I'll tell you this story. I don't know if there's any, if this relates at all to the sermon, where we're going tonight. But I was in New York City a couple of years ago, and I was at this comedy club, and the, these guys were sitting in the back row. And they were just like yelling things out. This is why we don't drink. This is why we don't do drugs. Right, Debbie? Thank you. These people didn't hear Debbie say that, though and they made some bad decisions. They're yelling things out. Comedian, mid-set, stands up, steps forward, looks in the back and goes, you, sir, what's your name? The guy who's shouting all of a sudden is like, he goes, uh, Brian. Comedian goes, shut up, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, it was, the guy didn't say anything the rest of the night. He didn't say anything the rest of the night. He was able to engage that trap and keep his honor intact. That's the whole point of the trap right there is what's going to be revealed in the response to what I'm doing. Am I going to get you flustered? Am I going to get you riled up enough to make you look stupid and make the crowds walk away? Or are you going to be able to be composed and tell Brian just to shut up and sit down? Jesus here in this moment has a people that are coming towards him, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they're setting the trap, the cheese is in there, and they butter him up. And it sounds good, but it smells awful. They say to him, teacher, we know that you are true and you don't care about anybody's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. And so with all of that said, knowing that you just call it like it is, you're not concerned about popularity or the polls at hand, you just, you just talk and it sounds true. Knowing that, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now that's a very tricky question, especially considering that this question is being asked by two different groups of people who have very different understandings of who Caesar is in their story. If Jesus says, yes, you need to go ahead and pay them, well then that's a problem for the Jewish people behind him. It's a problem for the Pharisees, it's a problem for the zealots that are very much so in Jesus' corner because no longer is Jesus on 
liberation side. He's actually siding with Rome here and protecting the prophets in corrupt manner. So if he says yes, then he loses all of them. But if he says no, then the Herodians, the keepers of the house, the ones who are overseeing the tax and making sure that the money is leaving the poor and going into their own pockets, well, then he will go to, they will go to Caesar, and Caesar will come back and take out Jesus. This is the epitome of the lose-lose situation right here. And so Jesus is in a pickle here. Jesus has his back up against the proverbial wall because there's really no right answer he can possibly give here. He hears the hecklers coming from the back of the crowd. But watch what he does here. Knowing their hypocrisy, that word is actor. Knowing that they're saying one thing, they're asking one question, but there's an angle behind their agenda that is pushing that question forward. Knowing all of this, knowing the two-faced nature of these two groups that are looking at me now, why put me to the test? Why are you doing what you're doing? What's, what's the real thing that's happening here? Turn the lights all the way on. And when you do, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. You see what Jesus just did? The groups came to Jesus and said, you don't look at things the way we look at things. In fact, the Greek in that first part of the text says, you don't look at the face. It was an ancient idiom that said, you just call it like it is. You don't care about appearances. Here Jesus says, bring me a coin so I can look at the face. You'll notice throughout history, you'll notice in your own story, in mine at least, if you are a person of privilege, if you are in a position of power, it is very advantageous to believe that Jesus just doesn't really look at the appearance of things. He doesn't really care about our actions, it's about our hearts. He doesn't care what we do publicly or collectively, he cares about our private and personal devotion. That is until he says, does anybody have a coin that I can see? Because I want to look at some things. Now context of this, this is standing inside of the temple. So Jesus in this moment right here is asked, who do we pay the tax to and who do we give the denarius to? And he goes, well, does anybody have a denarius on them? I hope not. If you're inside of the temple and you belong to either of these groups, you better not have a denarius on you. Why? Because the denarius is this coin right here. It has Caesar Tiberius's face on it and it tells you that Caesar Tiberius, son of Augustus, son of God. That's who he is. Tiberius, the son of Augustus who deemed himself to be God. Tiberius, son of God. You flip that coin around and it would say pontificate maximus, which means the high priest. This is a graven image that would have been offensive for any Jewish person to touch at that time, let alone to do so in the house of God, let alone to do so after the day that Jesus went in there with a broom and cleaned the place up and said all crooked measures and mediums need to go. It's one of the first things the Jewish people were commanded in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. When Jesus answers this group of people, he's exposing the ones who are asking the question. You don't actually care about the temple tax. 
No, I know you sing those songs in worship. I know you tweet out those pretty things about Jesus, but what's in your pocket? Jesus isn't carrying a coin. He can't pull one out of his own. He's already given a yes to God, which is required a no to other things. But he scans the room. He leans in on the askers of the question. He says, are you carrying something? Because if you are, you're coming forward as if you actually are interested in an answer, but you're just trying to expose me because you're not, of a, person, you're not a person of conviction. You're a person who's caught up in collaboration. And it's deceit. You are using religion to give a plastic endorsement on your crooked and corrupt ways. So let's look at this coin. Jesus pulls them back into that collective memory of Exodus 20 and says, you shouldn't have a coin, but if you do, let's, let's size it up. But then he says the answer to the question all the same. Jesus looks at the crowd. He looks at the people asking the question. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. This thing has Caesar's face on it. Get it out of here. Now, a lot of people, they hear half the story right there. In fact, I've heard a few press conferences from government officials who have quoted just the render to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's portion of that tale. But that's not all that Jesus says. Step one, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. Now, if Caesar's face is on this coin, so be it. But whose image is on Caesar's face? Debbie talked about this a few weeks ago. The whole story of Genesis 1 is the recognition that human beings are divinely imprinted by the image of God. So Dorothy Day says that if we actually were to give God all the things that are God's, there wouldn't be anything left for Caesar. It would completely draw Caesar out. I want you to think about this right now. I want you to think about the the coins in your own pocket, the things that you have your hope hinged upon, the places of power that you are coddling and getting cozy with. And think about your true allegiances, the path that you are on, where is it pointing and who's in charge of where it's going to go. Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, which in most scholars' estimation of this text is a way of saying, go ahead, I mean, be engaged, be a good citizen, be faithful to the leadership of the land. That is until the point where that leadership and that fidelity to the leadership interferes with your true allegiance to the Lord of your life. You can give to Caesar what you got to give to Caesar, but understand at the end of the day, if what you are giving to Caesar is a robbery from what you already said yes to give to God, then you need to back out. Because you do not want to be a coin-carrying hypocrite like these two groups here in the temple. The world doesn't get any better by coin-carrying hypocrites. Sick people don't get healed by coin-carrying hypocrites. Broken systems don't get fixed by coin-carrying hypocrites. 
When you said yes to Jesus, how did that yes change all the things that you now are saying no to? The invitation here from Christ is that we must not look at Christ through the eyes of our country. We need to look at our country through the eyes of Christ. Where does your true allegiance lie? Jesus talks about this again and again. This is what the early church is um, known for, really. If you think about the early church, you think about that, how defiant and subversive the statement is, Jesus is Lord. Why did they throw them in jail and put them in pits with lions? Because to say that Jesus is Lord is to also be saying that Caesar is not. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say that the person in power is really not that powerful. There's another one that we take our marching orders from, and he isn't it. Let the lion roar. Let them make all the noise they want. But our fidelity, our ultimate yes, has a higher calling than what's going to bring power and privilege our way tomorrow. We serve a king and a kingdom. We don't serve Caesar on the throne. And this is why, if you study the New Testament at all, this is why they got called traitors in turncoats. This is why, uh, if you look at the New Testament, it says that number of times people are arrested, 37 times. Prisoners or prisoners or prisoners, prisoner or prisoners, 63 times. Amount of times crucifixions are spoken about, 56 times. Court cases are brought up nine times. Mountain of times that people of God are called rebellious to the government nine different times. Amount of times that leaders of the faith are called crooked and criminal six different times. The amount of times that guards go after the people of God 33 times. There is nothing about the calling of Christ that should put you in cahoots with Caesar's kingdom. And so knowing what you are saying yes to, I'm reminded of this quote from Gandhi. Non-cooperation with evil is as much a duty as cooperation with good. Are there things that you have been complicit in, coins that you are carrying that you need to throw back to Caesar? You see, part of the reason why I think we hear this and we think it's so hard being a Christian is, is honestly because we've made it so easy to become one. But this wasn't always the case. You know, in the early church, they were known for it being like, you couldn't just join the church. Like right now, if you came twice a month, we would assume you're on staff. Like we would think like, there's, you have to be on the payroll on some level right now. But in the early church, it wasn't like you just would close your eyes, heads down, hands in the air, and you became a Christian. In fact, we have studies now that are showing that in the early church, it was a hard thing to become a Christian. In fact, one of the leading jokes of the time was that, is that if all the world wanted to become Christians, the Christians still wouldn't have them. Now, as a comedian, that's not very funny. I could just tell you that the comedic bit in there, it's missing. But the point still stands. You couldn't just sign up to become a Christian. In fact, if you wanted to become a Christian, there was a process that you would adhere to. Can I lay it out for you quick? Hypothetically, let's say that there was a person named Johnny who wanted to become a Christian. The first thing Johnny would do is he would go up to a church leader and he would state this interest. You go up to Debbie, you'd say, I want to become a Christian. Debbie, in response, by orders of the church, would say, you sure about that? Like, we have people in our group that are dying. To be a Christian, you got to give your money away. We're all in this thing together. It's not the easiest path to take, Johnny. 
Is that something you really want to do? If Johnny still was nodding his head and still said yes, still wasn't a Christian. What would happen then is that you would have the next three years of trying to live faithfully in community. Three years of day in, day out, 24-7, living according to the yes that you gave to God in the mundane and the exciting moments and everything in between of your life. After those three years were through, the leader of the church would come to Debbie, the sponsor of this particular church, and say, so what have you heard? What do we know about Johnny? Is he ready for a task of this size? Debbie would not go to Johnny and ask him about correct doctrine. He wouldn't want, she wouldn't want to know Johnny's theology. Debbie would go to the leaders of the church with the reports from the widows. Here's what the poor are saying about Johnny. Here's what the locals are saying about how they're being loved by Johnny. Now, if you got flying remarks even on that and the green light still stood and you were called to go forward, then you still weren't a Christian because then you had to get baptized. Now, the baptismal fonts looked like this in Jesus' day. And the understanding of it was that when you went into the water, you went in one end and you came out the other. How you went in is not how you will go out. You will be a different person. There is a process of transformation and renunciation that's going to happen along here. They also often were shaped like a, a circle to, to reflect a womb. You're going back into the womb. You're being born again. You're not going to be the same person before you first stepped in. But here's the most fascinating thing that would happen, and I'll close with this. When people, after three years of fidelity, of trying to see if they actually have what it takes to be a Christian, would come forward to the baptismal font, the church would ask them to renounce five different things. The church would stand them up in front of the community of God, and they'd say, first, do you renounce sexual immorality? The pagans used to say that Christians shared everything except for their spouses. That's funnier. That's a funnier joke right there. Will you be faithful in your marriage as a picture of your fidelity to Christ? The second thing they would ask you to renounce, idolatry. There's only one God. Not all of the gods of the Roman pantheon, there's only one God. Third thing, greed. If you're going to care more about money than you do about your neighbors, this isn't for you. It just isn't. Do you renounce greed? Fourth thing, violence. You can't be violent. In fact, early church doctrine had to arrange your words. You could be a soldier as long as you didn't kill. Fifth thing and final thing, the last thing that they would ask people who were in pursuit of the way of Christ do you renounce xenophobia? Will you love the foreigner because the foreigner is your family? All of these things are not about personal devotion. They're about public life together. Christ should arrange not just our energy and our emotion, but how we do life together. Let's give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But let's remember that all things are God's. And because we gave a yes there first, we have to give our no's to the lesser things from here on out. Amen? Amen. Give to God the things that are God's. That's sort of big, isn't it? The 
for us, people who are practicing the ways of Jesus, that means we give to God our whole self. That we give our minds and our hearts and our strength. That we stand with and for the things that Jesus stood for and the people he stood with. And so when we think about allegiance, <clears throat> we think about word and not just our words, but our our actions align with is it the widows and the poor and the people on the margins and that means in everything we do because this Jesus this Jesus taught us what it meant to set self aside for other this Jesus said that it's loving God and loving neighbor that that's what counts and it's this Jesus that we remember when we take communion together every Sunday night. On the night before Jesus died, he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this and remember me. And he took the cup and he poured wine into the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you, the new covenant. When you drink from this cup, Remember me. And that's what we do. We take the bread and we dip it into the cup. And on this night as we walk forward, we might be reminded who do we align with? Which Jesus are we following? We invite you during the music to come forward. There's gluten-free elements in the middle, regular elements on the sides. So please stand and together we pray the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our God, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 